This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Several years ago, when I first met Chad Frischman, and I'll invite him to come on, and saw Drawdown's initial data regarding the most effective currently available global warming solutions, it struck me immediately that I was looking at, in large part, a list of solutions to human disease and health disparities. So in this evening's ambitious program, we start a new conversation, bringing together specialists from different disciplines to explore how single actions might solve multiple problems. Chad will serve as our global warming solutions discussant this evening, and after his initial comments coming up shortly, we will bring our health experts into the conversation. Well, Chad Frischman is a gentleman with a multidisciplinary background in scientific methodology, public policy, human rights, sustainable development, and environmental conservation a perfect combination for him to serve as lead researcher and principal architect of the methodology and models behind Project Drawdown. Several years ago, when many people were asking, what can I do about global warming and what science is there about the impact of different solutions, Drawdown made a huge leap in addressing these questions by providing a much-needed foundation of knowledge for scientists and the public alike. The project continues to mature and expand its impact on local, national, and global levels. So I'll turn the floor, or I guess it would be screen actually, as it were, over to Chad, who will tell us more about Drawdown's aims and accomplishments. Thank you. Really great to be here uh, with you all tonight. I'm very excited to be able to speak a little bit about uh, our project, Project Drawdown. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. As Catherine was saying, we published this book in 2017 uh, called uh, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. And recently in 2020, we updated all of our results, all of our uh, research to the, to the latest science, the latest data on uh, solutions that can achieve this point of drawdown. But for those of you who aren't familiar with what I mean when I say drawdown, let me give you a quick definition. Uh, drawdown is that point in time when atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases begin to decline on a year-to-year -year basis. It's that point when we take out more greenhouse gases than we put in to Earth's atmosphere. And the proposition is really rather simple. If we can change the uh, concentration of those heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere, we can affect global cooling, essentially, essentially stopping global warming and beginning the long process of reversing it. But more than just a technical definition, Drawdown is really a new way of thinking about and acting on global warming. It's that marker on the horizon pointing us to a future that we actually want, a regenerative future where reversing global warming is actually possible. But how do we get there? Well, first, we have to understand what are the sources of emissions? Where, how do they get into the atmosphere in the first place? We then, once they're there, we have to understand how do we get them out? How do we pull them out of the atmosphere through natural and engineered sinks? And finally, how do we improve society to ensure that justice, equity, and inclusion are embedded in the system from the get-go? So where are the sources coming from? Well, first of all, sources of emissions come from just about every area of human activity. 
whether that's the electricity that we're generating when we turn on our lights or the, uh, the gas that's combusted to heat our homes, whether it's the, uh, uh, how we move around in the world through our communities, through our cities and across the world. It's what we're consuming, what we're, what the food that we produce and what we consume and sadly what we waste produces emissions. And of course, how we produce and manufacture all of the stuff that we consume. All of these things, all these areas of human activity produce energy, produce money, and produce emissions. All kinds of emissions from carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, fluorinated gases. And those gases enter in the atmosphere and uh, trap heat. Luckily, we also have mechanisms to pull down uh, carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, these are uh, through natural, uh, uh, natural sinks in our uh, land and ocean ecosystems. We can pull carbon out of the atmosphere through a process we all learn about in grade school. It's the magic, the miracle of photosynthesis, which converts carbon dioxide into plants, uh, soil organic uh, carbon or plants biomass. Um, unfortunately, about 59% of all the uh, uh, gases that enter into the atmosphere stay there. And that's because of the limitations of those natural sinks due to the degradation of our, uh, uh, of our ecosystems over long periods of time um, and how much we're actually putting into the atmosphere. So how do we actually turn off the sources and enhance the sinks so that we can achieve drawdown? Again, that point in time when atmospheric concentrations begin to decline on a year-to-year -year basis. Well, there are one of three mechanisms that can get us there. First, uh, 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 technologies of price that can reduce consumption, whether that's through technological efficiencies or through behavior change, or by replacing uh, uh, technologies and practices that are part of the problem with alternatives that are part of the solution. Or it's uh, restoring carbon to useful forms, again, through natural uh, sinks, uh, through that process of photosynthesis, or increasingly through engineered sinks or technologies that are able to suck out carbon dioxide and store it into useful forms that can be actually used for various materials uh, for, for, for our, our use in our economy. So Project Drawdown is a research and communications organization that's mapped, uh, measured, modeled, and disseminated the most substantive technologies and practices that exist today that when taken together as a system of solutions can achieve drawdown. And this is a, a design of the framework of the system itself that addresses those sources, sinks, and societies through almost all the areas of human activity. We describe uh, how we get there, how do we actually get to uh, achieving drawdown and what these solutions actually are, because they exist today. They are real, tangible solutions that we don't have to invent, we don't have to imagine, we simply need the will to accelerate their implementation farther and faster than we ever thought possible but we can do that. And when we do do that, we can achieve our targets, our climate targets. This is a list of all of the top 25 solutions that we've evaluated at Project Drawdown. Now, so those of you who are familiar with our book and some of our previous talks may have seen a list in a different form. That's because it's a living and uh, a living research project. We're always reevaluating solutions, adding new data, reevaluating our methodologies and approaches to how we understand how these solutions are being adopted currently and what their future prognostications are based on the best available data that we have with us. And so this represents the latest results published in our 2020 review. 
To the right of the slide, you'll see uh, numbers in gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalents. Uh, that means we convert all of those uh, carbon dioxide, methane, fluorinated gases, and nitrous oxide into the equivalent of the CO of, of carbon dioxide so that we can compare all of these different technologies and practices within the system as apples to apples to apples. And what you see, those two numbers represents two levels of ambition. The first uh, is aligned with a two degrees Celsius warming target, and the second, a 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target. Now, what you'll see if you notice this for, uh, is difference from the last, uh, the 2017 list, is we have uh, we really are seeing a difference in terms of uh, uh, the impact of reduced food waste, plant-rich diets, and health, uh, and health and education really jumps to the top of our list here. Um, but one of the things we really want to note here is when we typically think about solutions to global warming, the first thing that comes to mind are renewable energy systems. And it's true, this is a necessary set of solutions. But if we think about the system as a whole and all the emissions that are being generated by all of our human activity, only about 25% comes from electricity generation, which is a huge set, it's the largest sector as a whole. Um, but if you look at this list, only four of the top 25 or so solutions relate to electricity generation. So where do the other emissions coming from and then where are the other uh, solutions? Well, we have to look to our building industry, a building, a built environment, uh, the, our industrial uh, processes and our transportation because these both consume energy from the grid as well as from on-site combustion of fossil fuels. We also have to think about the, the types of uh, uh, materials that we're producing, things like refrigerants, which are uh, high global warming potentials, which means that they uh, they trap heat much uh, much more uh, than than other uh, other other gases, and are hundreds to thousands times more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So we need to think about how we can manage by reducing, uh, uh, or I should say, uh, uh, managing leakage, as well as destroying those refrigerants, hydrofluorocarbons at the end of life. And what are the natural alternatives that we can replace? Uh, uh, existing refrigerants with alternative uh, natural refrigerants that don't have that high uh, greenhouse gas potential, uh, uh, global warming potential. So we have to think about uh, solutions outside of electricity generation and account for buildings, industry, and transportation. One of the things that really surprised us, I think, is the impact of the food systems as a whole. Um, what uh, uh, this represents about nine of the top uh, solutions relate directly to uh, what we produce and how we're consuming that food. But if we think about uh, all uh, the, the, the value chain throughout the food system, it becomes really obvious why these solutions matter so much. If we think about every drop of oil, every crust of bread that's produced, we think about producing it from uh, growing the food and uh, 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 cropland to harvesting, processing, packaging, thinking about all the glass, tin, cardboard, paper that we use to put the food into, uh, onto trucks, uh, uh, boats, and sadly too often planes with the luxury commodities to be flown all across the world, producing emissions in that transportation, in refrigeration units that are uh, leaking hydrofluorocarbons, they're uh, leaking hydrofluorocarbons to get to our uh, to our grocery stores and markets, and sadly who are uh, being uh, overstocking due to assumed consumer demand, and consumers who are over uh, over purchasing and sadly wasting thirty to forty percent of all food across that system gets wasted. And if we think about all the energy, all the emissions that are 
generated throughout that value chain, it becomes really clear the decisions that we make every day about what we're consuming and uh, how and uh, how that that food is produced are really some of the most substantive solutions we can make to reducing those uh, emissions from the start. Um, but we also have to think about how we're managing our land. So land and ocean sinks are how drawdown actually happens on a year-to-year -year basis. This, these are, are, are ecosystems that, like restoring currently degraded land, we can actually bring life back to land uh, and sequester carbon, again, in uh, plants' biomass or soil organic carbon. Um, and uh, by protecting uh, uh, ecosystems uh, that hold and store that carbon uh, in soils and in plants and in our ocean systems, uh, we uh, can protect the carbon from entering into the atmosphere. And so by protecting our ecosystems are really important. And it's interesting because um, uh, one of the, the principal driver for uh, uh, the degradation of our land systems is to produce cropland or pasture land for food consumption. So when we think about taking land and food together, they become the most important set of solutions, not only because they reduce emissions that are associated with production and distribution of all that food, and of course the uh, degradation of land, but also because they can sequester carbon on a year-to-year -year basis and store and pull carbon back out of the atmosphere. So this is really some of the most uh, important set of solutions that we uh, have in front of us. And then of course, health and education, which we'll talk about a little bit uh, later, is a basic human right. But when we think about uh, providing a, a voluntary reproductive health care, uh, to all people and universal quality uh, uh, and access to education. This has the effect of changing people's uh, family sizes uh, and uh, uh, which reduces population, uh, uh, rapid population growth overall and has the effect of reducing all of the production of all of that other stuff. And that has a very powerful impact on uh, reducing emissions over, over the next 30 years. But we have to think about all of these uh, solutions as a system of systems because they're all interconnected, right? Um, and when we think about all of these solutions as a whole and the impact they can have as a system, drawdown suddenly becomes possible, but only when we challenge that system as a whole. We know what the solutions are. We, they are there. They are scientifically valid, economically uh, viable, and financially uh, economically and financially viable. They're already scaling all over the world, but we need to accelerate them faster. And that means changing the system, moving away from a system that's focused on problem fixing, uh, motivated by fear, and a system that operates in competition and conflict. We need to change that to a new paradigm, focusing on solutions and the possibility of what those solutions can achieve based on science and data, and a new way of working together in collaboration, uh, linking arms to change the system as a whole and seeing this as a more organic way of doing business. And when we do that, when we see this as a system of solutions and change and really challenge that system to, to focus on solutions, possibility and collaboration, we can actually achieve our two degrees Celsius warming target. This represents the total uh, 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 impact of all of the 76 solutions that we've been uh, we've modeled the drawdowns that as a system, this can achieve our, our targets. But if we're more ambitious, uh, where we're more vigorous in our adoption of these solutions, we can do more. We can uh, achieve our 1.5 degree Celsius warming target. And you'll notice 
the ranking or the, 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 the contributions of these solution shifts. And that's to be expected. Um, and they're going to change over time. All of these solutions are needed because there are no silver bullets. Depending on how fast we move in one direction or another, one sector, are going to have a different level of contribution, of course, but we need them all. Uh, there are no silver bullets. There's no subset of solutions that are going to get us there. We need all of these solutions to address all of these areas of human activity to really fundamentally change that system. Again, challenging the system, we can achieve our targets. And indeed, we may even be able to go beyond our climate targets and achieve our uh, other global goals, such as the sustainable development goals, um, uh, which is the uh, which are the goals set by the United Nations to achieve by 2030 a sustainable planet for people, planet and prosperity, where we uh, uh, can alleviate poverty, eliminate hunger, improve health and well-being for all people, improve education, gender equality, reduce inequalities, clean water and sanitation, et cetera, et cetera. This is the future of the uh, world that uh, the UN has set for us to achieve. And if we implement the drawdown system of solutions, we can achieve the sustainable development goals uh, and indeed go beyond those goals. Because all of these solutions, all of these technologies and practices that have real impact on the climate, on, on the atmosphere, right? If at the end of the day, we're talking to the atmosphere with all these uh, solutions, but they also have cascading benefits to human and planetary well-being. Uh, these are solutions that as a system, as a whole, can uh, uh, improve uh, health, human health outcomes, which we're gonna be talking about later this evening. Uh, will improve uh, and enhance and uh, protect our biodiversity, our ecosystems. We're going to create a, a abundant access to electricity that is clean and, uh, and renewable for all people, helping to alleviate poverty, improve educational outcomes and livelihoods, and improve uh, health outcomes with reduced air pollution. And all of these solutions have a direct impact on so many of the other challenges that we're facing uh, as a planet and as a, as a species. And, uh, and uh, that's what's so exciting about this is that climate, set of climate solutions when implemented in the right way with justice, equity, and inclusion at its heart uh, can change the system to a new way of doing business that is regenerative in nature, that is, goes beyond sustainability, that improves well-being for all people, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, are solutions that we're going to want to do anyway, whether or not climate uh, change was even a problem. We want these solutions because of all these other benefits to human and planetary well-being. Um, and the great thing about this is not only uh, uh, do these have so many benefits to our economy uh, by shifting the economy uh, to, to regenerative way of doing business, shifting our mindsets, our, our organizing principles, it is also cost-effective. Um, our, our, our research shows that through a, an additional implementation cost of about 22 to 30 trillion, 20 to 30 trillion dollars over those 30 years, there's a net operational savings of 90 to almost 150 trillion dollars of operational savings in the same time frame. Time frame. So this is kind of a, a no-brainer. Uh, there's financial return, there's improved uh, uh, economic activity that is regenerative in nature, so fundamentally shifting with the way the uh, our economy operates. This produces jobs, it produces well-being for all people, and it achieves our sustainable development goals, and I dare say, move beyond to a regenerative, uh, to regenerative development goals that we need for the future. And these are all the opportunities that we want to, so that we can create that future that we know that we need. And uh, when we come together to build that regenerative future, 
um, we can uh, we can do so in achieving so many of our, our, our targets, but only, and this is my big idea, I guess, for today, it's only when we come together because this is the time to do so. There's an urgency in implementing these solutions. We have a short window in terms of the effects of climate change, we have a short window in terms of the uh, effects on biodiversity, we have a short window in terms of possible tipping points. But now is the time because for the decisions that we make today have impact for ourselves, but for our children, for our children's children, our grandchildren, and for future generations to come. Perhaps for the first time in human history, our decisions truly matter. They truly have deep meaning for, for all, all future generations to come. So we need to link arms together and do away with our generation X, Y, and Z, right? What's the next generation? The re-generation. We need to link arms and come together across generations uh, and, and, and uh, as a species, really usher in a new regenerative economy and regenerative society uh, and adopt a system of solutions that can help us achieve all of our, uh, all of our goals. Um, and with that, I will uh, uh, pause and pass it back on to uh, Catherine. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to first um, invite Ndola Prata. Um, Chad, thank you so much for your work. So many of us and our family members have become familiar with Drawdown's work in the past several years, and it's been a great service for people to gain a better understanding of solutions to global warming that are already available to us. So we'll now turn to the first of three conversations that will give us a taste of how we can solve health inequities, human disease, and global warming with shared solutions. And in this conversation, I'll be speaking with Chad Frischman and Ndola Prata. Um, Dr. Prata is a public health physician, medical demographer, and professor at UC Berkeley in maternal and child health. Among accomplishments that are clearly too numerous to list, she has served as a demographer analyst for the Center for Disease Control's Division of Reproductive Health, and she holds an endowed chair in population and family planning. She's also the director of the Bixby Center for Population Health and Sustainability and serves as co-chair for several other important organizations. She has particular scientific expertise in maternal health family planning, and the impact of education of girls. I encourage you to learn more about Dr. Prata's high-impact work on her faculty profile at the University of California Berkeley website. Ndola Prata, we are thrilled to have you here with us this evening. Um, we'll be asking Chad to chime in shortly too, but first I'd like to ask you if you could share with us from your rich personal and professional experiences, what do we know about the benefit of education, educating girls as a start here to human health and health disparities. Thank you, Catherine, and good evening, everybody. Um, so I, I want to start by saying that education is important for everybody. Um, but focusing on girls' education specifically, I can divide the benefits of education, of girls' education to health into three groups. The first group will be um, herself, the, the young girl, as she transitions to adulthood. The second group will be her offsprings or her family and, and friends, close friends, um, including the extended family. And the third group will be the community where she lives. So, um, 
in terms of the health affecting her own health, an educated girl will be able to uh, navigate better the resources that might be available to her to access healthcare. It might be even more empowered to negotiate or participate in the decision making that is necessary to uh, for her health. Um, be able to uh, um, discuss her health status more openly with the health provider because of the dynamics that exist. Uh, poor women and women with uh, limited education tend not to speak up for themselves and tend to be very shy in, for example, a health visit. And sometimes uh, the decisions are made by the provider that then later on might be um, uh, indicative of how sort of uh, imposing the provider was in terms of the treatment, um, but also in certain circumstances, specifically in the area that I work, which is family planning, it can be anywhere sort of a, from straightforward coercion to, you know, borderline uh, coercive acts uh, that women without education wouldn't be able to um, address. Um, now, a woman that uh, uh, is, uh, is educated also tends to uh, look for jobs and positions that can be better paid than, for example, uh, her ancestors that work without education, that work on agriculture, sometimes just agriculture for subsistence, or work in some other households uh, for very little pay um, and, and no sort of a, a health benefits. And by uh, sort of looking for those high paying jobs would also help sort of lift the family that she will form uh, out of poverty, uh, which is very important. That will also help um, in sort of bridging the gap that exists in terms of inequities or the gender gap between uh, men and women in many societies. Um, now, with, the, with respect to her offsprings or family members, um, I think that the similar uh, 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 sort of a circumstances apply. What she can advocate and apply for herself can also do for her family members and for her offsprings. Um, my experience in maternal uh, and child health when I was uh, clinical, sort of a, uh, a clinician um, in very poor areas where I was born in Angola, um, you could see exactly the difference between even mothers with secondary education and mothers with no education. Mother with the secondary education, they will come and they will explain the symptoms that their children have, and they would even explain what they over already tried at home. Um, they will look for information about uh, what is affecting their child and how best to, to do it. Now, mothers without education were very limited. Um, for example, some they couldn't read or couldn't read very poorly, and a lot of information was um, uh, in, written uh, in sometimes in a language that they couldn't understand. Um, but most importantly, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, their ability to navigate the health system to advocate for their children uh, wasn't there. So if it wasn't for sort of uh, the dedication of the healthcare sort of uh, providers to help them navigate that system, um, they wouldn't be able to, to take full advantage of the, the, the sort of uh, the resources. In addition, sometimes they don't even know their rights. Um, on how to, to sort of to ask for they already should be having in the first place. 
Now, the other example that I wanted to bring is um, in terms of the benefits that educating girls could bring for the health of their own community. They can, for example, learn in school um, some prevention strategies that may be, uh, that are more modern and that maybe uh, their community wasn't exposed to or doesn't have the knowledge about, or sometimes even doesn't, um, uh, uh, does not sort of, a, um, they don't react when the information um, is there. So healthcare systems might bring, might come to communities, bring new interventions, but because of some of the distrust that might exist or some of the tension that exists between traditional health and um, and sort of an, an Western medicine, for example, sometimes they take time to adopt and having girls in the community that have been to school and have learned, for example, the importance of uh, a clean water uh, for drinking, the importance of how to manage the sewage and how to dispose the garbage, um, the importance of, for example, uh, the, the smoking, the, the, the value of certain nutritional uh, sort of a, um, uh, fruits and vegetables that sometimes exist in the community that they sell for the outside outside people in the cities, but they don't consume themselves and there is malnutrition among the children. So this is very important. I, I can actually uh, mention to you, if you allow me, examples from my own experience um, that was with me being to school. I'm the first daughter of six children. My mom has very uh, little education, didn't finish um, primary school. So when I went to school and started to learn uh, the value of nutrition or what was not good, you know, cholesterol and what uh, uh, sort of a foods uh, do have and that we should avoid sugar, etc. Um, but also the smoking, because my mom was a smoker. It was, it was that knowledge that I actually brought to the household and was able to change the habits, not just of my family, the neighbors around and the extended family uh, members, because I, I was bringing that knowledge that they otherwise, because they didn't go to school, they otherwise wouldn't have access to. So it is extremely important to educate girls um, in that respect. Thank you so much. That really provides uh, some insight as to what you have been through and um, and also what the science is showing us as well. Um, Chad, um, Drawdown has mapped and measured a host of remedies to global warming. And from your view, um, what's the impact of education in, of girls and women, which you now include in that health and education category, um, so in the related activities, sort of the cascading value um, that Ndola has also described to improve planetary health and mitigate the most dramatic changes in climate. So what might you add about the value of education of girls when it comes to global warming? First thing to say is that these solutions that we profile in, in, in Project Drawdown oftentimes are not first and foremost a climate solution, right? So to bear that in mind, when we're talking about health and education, educating, educating girls and providing universal access and quality of education, dealing, like really addressing the gender disparity in the educational system globally um, and, and access to uh, voluntary reproductive health care and, and family planning resources, like uh, this first and foremost is a human right, right? Just, we want to make that very clear. 
And in many of the cases, or uh, many of the solutions around drawdown, this is the climate impact is a second, third, fourth order benefit. So they, we talk about cascading benefits. This is this is uh, uh, when we implement uh, these solutions. There are so many uh, interconnected benefits that uh, that, are, that happen, and, and often have not the first one. So first and foremost, this is a uh, fundamental, basic human right for all people. Uh, and these are solutions, health and education, that address, uh, uh, as, I, as, as, as Nola was mentioning. Uh, gender inequality, improved economic outputs, uh, livelihoods, um, and and really is about justice, right? It's really about justice. So being uh, having justice, equity, and inclusion as part of the system, and that's what really what health and education is, is really all about. HSO also happens to have an impact on on the climate, and what is that impact, or how do we measure that? Uh, well, we we show that uh, you know, studies show that uh, girls who receive uh, uh, twelve to thirteen years of schooling have dramatically different uh, uh, life trajectories, delayed onset of marriage, uh, smaller family sizes, improved economic activity uh, for their household. Um, and, uh, and Andola mentioned all of these other, uh, all, these, all, these, all these great benefits. And what that happens uh, to also seem to do is increase the uptake of family planning, uh, voluntary family planning resources. So when we think about uh, health and education as a bundled solution, what we're really talking about is changes in rapid population growth uh, and, and population growth actually overall, both in the least and less developed countries as well as uh, 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 high income countries uh, or most developed countries. So we're saying that really, how does the population trajectories that are projected by the United Nations in the future can change due to the increase, uh, increased uptake of family planning? Uh, again, that's voluntary reproductive health care, access to contraception and the freedom to choose whether uh, or not, if, when, and how to raise a family uh, without uh, persecution, without any kind of persecution, that fundamental basic right has an increased uptake uh, across the world when, uh, when we uh, provide equal quality uh, and access to education to girls and boys for those 12 to 13 years of schooling. And that needs to happen in many parts of the world for both boys and girls. We're seeing very low uh, educational attainment uh, uh, secondary school attainment in, in many countries where we also have the highest fertility rates for boys and girls. So we need to dramatically increase the access to quality of education for all people and specifically address uh, the access to education for, for, for girls, which is uh, across the world very uh, great disparities. So, so that's really fundamentally important. And when we do that, when we, in, when we improve the, the, these uh, health and education for all, these, for all people, um, we show uh, smaller family sizes, uh, lower fertility rates, um, and uh, a decrease in that rapid population growth. And that translates to reduced demand for everything else. All those areas of human activity that we talked about, electricity generation, buildings, uh, building space, food, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, industrial, all this stuff is reduced. All the energy, all the emissions to produce all of that stuff is reduced. Um, and that means uh, that has a direct impact on the atmosphere, as well as a direct impact on our resource productivity uh, uh, and help us to have a more sustainable and just planet moving forward. And that's just providing the basic human right uh, for health, uh, reproductive health care and education for all people, and particularly addressing the gender uh, disparities. And there's a lot there's a lot of extra benefit to uh, to uh, to. Uh, and uh, addressing uh, uh, girls' education 
uh, in the future because um, in education generally, but particularly girls' education, because these these folks are, as Angela uh, mentioned, this improved um, um, uh, engagement with communities to implement these solutions and changing the way actually uh, uh, climate solutions can uh, uh, be and sustainability as a whole is understood um, and, 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 and increases the uptake of all of these other solutions when we have a uh, improved access to education overall. We see an increased uptake of all of the solutions. So it's incredible to think about the impact that education of girls and boys um, everywhere can ultimately have on the planet but we have to think of that in the context also of the fact that it's really um, the United States, China, India, Europe, the industrialized countries that have been responsible for the vast majority of output of greenhouse gases. And Dola, before we move on to our next conversation, would you like to add anything or comment about that, please? Yes, thank you, Catherine. So it is true that uh, at the current at the current moment, as Chad mentioned, and you also highlighted, Catherine, that um, the most of the, the the emissions are actually coming from the uh, developed countries, um, and the, a, a lot of it. And Chad, you know more than I about these issues are related to consumption. However, we have to realize that the population in very poor countries, such as in sub-Saharan in Africa is growing very rapidly and it will we we will catch up and contribute just by the sheer volume of number of people that um, uh, will will have in the planet so on the other hand um, as we've been talking about educating girls is a benefit to the planet and to the society and for for the human race so uh, while at the same time we know that in uh, the same countries where population is growing rapidly is also where women are having more children than they want to. Mm -hmm. And they're not, the mortality, maternal mortality is very high, child mortality is very high, a lot because pregnancies are very closed uh, spaced. The space between pregnancies is very short. So by giving education, we will also allow these young women to have access to contraception so that they can um, decide how many and when to have their children, um, at, while at the same time participated in the development of their countries uh, by uh, being part of the uh, workforce. Uh, so, so we're solving many issues at the same time, at the individual level, at the country level, but also at the planet level. Well, yeah, Chad, last I comment? I just want to follow up on Adola, because I think it's an important point to also to, to, really, to hone in on. If we assume, so, so it's a great, great point, uh, Catherine, that they're, 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 in terms of the per capita emissions associated with all that consumption with the high income countries versus least and less developed countries with, with, low, with high fertility rates, and as Nosa, we see that population growth going to be really high in sub-Saharan Africa. And if we assume that there's no no growth and no economic development in these these areas, and they're still going to be uh, uh, have that same per capita of emissions, then then things are they're still going to be high, but they're going to be much less. But if we instead assume that we want to improve the livelihoods and well-being of all people, and we want to actually account for economic growth, we want to account for access to electricity, 
access to mobility, access to good homes, access to good transportation, access to good uh, uh, food. Like we want to improve livelihoods of all people to be equitable. We have to think about uh, how that population growth and all that population growth that Noel was talking about, plus the uh, an equitable economic growth, that's creating even more emissions, right? So when we think about that population change, uh, we want to see, you know, how can we help? Uh, how can how can well not we help, but how can we help everyone help support the economic growth uh, of, of of all people, um, while at the same time uh, uh, providing this education and, and, and reducing that that that, that population uh, um, uh, expected population growth uh, to to more sustainable levels, while at the same time improving well-being for all people. So so I just want to make that that point. Like we we, we don't want to assume that. You know, people who are living in least developed countries and high fertility rates are always going to have the same level of livelihood now and the same in 30 years. We want to improve livelihoods and give them access, give have them have access to electricity and and, and mobility and, and all the things that we uh, in higher income countries take for granted. But that's where not only populate health education solutions come in, but also leapfrogging ahead to new development trajectories in least and, develop, least and less developed con, uh, countries that adapt to solutions instead of following along the same pathway that high-income countries have already followed and producing all those emissions. Great points. Thank you. So really focusing on uh, reversing global warming and methods to do that while improving the quality of life for everyone. So thank you so much. Um, Dr. Prata, we'll look forward to seeing you back shortly for the panel discussion. And in the meantime, I'd like to turn to Dr. Vincent Adams. Uh, Dr. Adams, if you are there, thank you. Um, who is Professor of Anthropology in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences School of Medicine at UCSF. Her amazing career has included projects in China, Nepal, Tibet, and the United States, and she has helped all of us to understand the interwoven nature of medicine and society. She has written a host of articles and books, including her 1998 work, Doctors for Democracy, The Role of Health Professionals in the Nepal Revolution. In recent years, though, she's focused much needed attention on the clinical, scientific, and political terrain that has resulted in industrialized food production, massive use of pesticides and herbicides, and the associated decline in soil quality, planetary health, and large-scale impacts on human health. She has proposed the term eco-medicine as an alternative model to help us focus the lens on the interrelatedness of healthy soil and human health. Um, Vincent Adams, welcome. Um, I think I will invite myself and Chad to turn ourselves off for a few moments because I know you have some slides here. And um, can you please start by defining for us the concept of regenerative farming and related practices and explain, and explain why this is important to human health? I will. And I'm, I just want to start by saying how pleased I am and grateful I am to be here tonight. And thank you to the organizers. And I just want to make a brief footnote before I begin my presentation about how I spent two decades working on safe motherhood and decided that I needed to shift to the work on agriculture and food 
uh, in industrial food production because I felt that the climate change issues were so important. And tonight has made me realize that I jumped too soon because they are clearly connected. So I really appreciated the presentation that you gave, Ndola, and I particularly appreciated your presentation, Chad, and especially the beautiful slides. My slides are not going to be quite as extraordinary, but let me, um, let me launch my slides for you. Uh, let's see. I wanted to start with my, the, you know, the thing I want to, to talk about tonight is how we can reach carbon neutrality by farming for health. Regenerative agriculture uh, is a, an interesting name for a series of farming technologies that have been around in some ways for many years and has um, regenerative farming has many, many lineages. And I won't go into the details of these right now. But regenerative farming basically is in many ways a return to the kind of farming that was done in the US before the turn to agrochemical high tillage monocrop industrial farming, which many have argued was a consequence not of the increased need for food production and distribution, but rather the attempt on the part of chemical companies to repurpose the petrochemicals that were designed for use in warfare for use on the home front on American farms. DDT is a good example of this. Many have argued, however, that our chemically dependent industrial monocrop agriculture systems have turned our farmlands into wastelands with foods that need a steady supply of pesticides, which in turn deplete the soil of life-sustaining nutrients and animals and microbes, thus also requiring massive amounts of high-cost chemical fertilizers. Regenerative farming, Regenerative agriculture tries to undo all this damage by using techniques of no tillage. So letting the soil alone so as not to disturb the living symbiotic system it contains, using cover crops and letting them decompose into the soil between the growing of food crops, including grasses, legumes, and broadleaf plants that help the soil retain its structural and nutritional health. Regenerative agriculture decreases the need for pesticides and herbicides, as well as the need for additive fertilizers. So it potentially disrupts the agrochemical industry's hold on farmers. Although we can talk later about how Monsanto and other companies are retooling for at least for biodiversity goals. Regenerative agriculture usually produces organic foods, meaning in its primary sense that they do not use genetically modified crops that were designed to be grown with herbicides or that are made into insecticides in their own right. The main focus of regenerative farming though, above all else, is farming that focuses on keeping the soil healthy. It is often also associated with local distribution chains. So attending to the concerns that Chad said about distribution of foods, regenerative farming is on this. Some of the advantages of regenerative farming for the planet include a reduction in the need for large, large equipment for tilling, spraying, and fertilizing, thus reducing the farm, farmer's carbon footprint. Regenerative agriculture is one of the most efficient ways, and this is probably the most important part of it for the story tonight, of putting more carbon back into the soil through carbon sequestration. At the Paris Climate Accord, it was proposed that every nation commit to the four per thousand initiative, which means to increase by 0.4% per thousand acres, 
the amount of carbon that is put back into agricultural land, which could actually reverse climate change, change trajectories. Regenerative agriculture improves the density of aerated soil, which enables it to prevent erosion, that is, so that it holds more water, which is not only important for feeding plants, but also for protecting the water table in agricultural region, regions. Regenerative agriculture improves soil health and increases biodiversity of the soil and of the entire ecosystem where it is used. Not surprisingly, because it stops killing plants and animals and bugs. So it refuses this idea that we must have a trade-off between crops and other forms of life. It basically eliminates the need for commercial, industrial, agricultural wastelands. Regenerative farming also has advantages for health. One of the most important benefits is the reduction of the human consumption of pesticides, including both herbicides and insecticides. And I'll just focus in on one case here, the case of a chemical called glyphosate, which is a broad spectrum weed killer that was discovered in the post DDT era. It was actually invented as a chelator, a metal chelator, and then was discovered to be a very efficient weed killer. Today, most of the major commodity crops of the US, including soy, corn, canola, and sugar beets, were all designed to be what's called Roundup ready, meaning they are genetically designed to be used with and not die from exposure to Roundup or its active ingredient called glyphosate. Soy, corn, canola, and sugar beets, of course, are drenched in glyphosate and they make up a huge amount of the processed foods that are eaten in America. In addition to knowing that this chemical was patented as an antibiotic by Monsanto, glyphosate is now recognized by the WHO as a class two carcinogen related to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in humans. Because regenerative agriculture improves soil health by increasing microbes and symbionts like uh, worms that keep the soil aerated by use, and by using high nutrient replenishment cover crops, the foods that are grown in this kind of farming system also have higher mineral, vitamin, and fiber content um, than non-organic industrial grown foods. The increases in these ingredients also translates to a healthier gut microbiome. First of all, if you eliminate the toxicants in food, especially things like glyphosate that are an antibiotic, then you are allowing the gut to do its job. One of the things that it can do is to make your amino acids. It enables the sustaining of the health of the lining of the gut so that the microvilli function properly to create the semi-permeable boundary between the digestive tract and the bloodstream. And in this way, it allows the microbiome, a healthy microbiome to reduce digestive disorders, proposed uh, solutions to things like chronic constipation all the way to more serious disorders like IBS, I IBD and ulcerative colitis. The increase in biodiversity of the soil in which food crops are grown also are believed to increase the health of the immune system at an early age by way of a healthy exposure of humans to microbes that are found in healthy soils that give the immune system an early advantage. 
So I'll just stop with those uh, with a few take home points. Uh, one being that climate, climate change, food production systems and human health are all interconnected, though this is not really well known in most medical schools or at least not well pursued. And I believe that health science students need to learn more about nutrition, not in relation to the biochemical ingredients of food uh, and the body's needs, but in relation to soil, agricultural and planetary health. Thank you so much, Vincent, and I'll ask uh, Chad to come back on at this time, too. It's just amazing to me that years ago when I was in medical school, we were clamoring for more education about nutrition, the importance of what we eat and what's in our food, and we're still clamoring about education in nutrition and the importance of what we eat and the types of foods and where they come from. So just a, a slight irony there. Um, Chad, I know that regenerative farming is a major solution in the category of food, agriculture, and land use in the Project Drawdown. Um, and there are a whole bunch of other um, techniques that are in that category um, and activities, such as uh, tree intercropping, uh, perennial biomass, composting, uh, and especially a plant-rich diet. And you already touched upon decreased food waste. Um, could you, for just a, a moment, since we're running short on time here, choose mm. one of your favorites <laughs> and tell us what what do you know about that and what, what is the impact um, of any of those techniques on as you measure them? <laughs> you know, I, I, you, people try to pin me down on that. I, well, I would never do it, uh, Catherine. And because <laughs> I say I say things different. I say, look. It's the system of the solutions itself that is my favorite solution because that's really that's that's what it is it's a systemic solution, right? Um, and, and when you think about regenerative agriculture, and we profile regenerative annual cropping in particular, but all these practices, whether it's multi-strata agroforestry, silvopasture, uh, uh, regenerative annual cropping, perennial bioenergy uh, crops, these can all be kind of categorized and is part of regenerate a broader definition of what regenerative agriculture means. So, 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 so first of all, I think like we, when we think about all the many practices that we profile and draw down there, there are many of them, most of them are regenerative in, in nature, right, by and large. Um, and so, so when we implement all of those uh, uh, solutions, it matters where you are in the world and what kind of operations you have and to, to what matters most. So multi-strata agroforestry is one of the most uh, substantive, uh, substantive uh, solutions uh, uh, for certain parts of the world in limited capacity due to, you know, uh, different biophysical characteristics that are in certain parts of the world than others. Um, so I would say, yeah, multi-strata agroforest, if we can do that everywhere, that would be great in terms of its climate benefit, as well as, you know, food production, productivity, uh, increased yield, uh, um, and, uh, and benefiting smallholder farmers and large farming operations alike. We, you know, that this, you know, there are particular solutions that are really um, impactful. Um, but as a system as a whole, what we show uh, when we combine regenerative agricultural practice, all of the practices that we profile at Drawdown, and we adopt a plant-rich diet, and we adopt reduced food waste. And we're not even just talking about 50% adoption of plant-rich diets and 50% adoption of reduced food waste globally. Now, we could do more than that, right? We can do 75% more than that. Um, but if we only do 50% and we do, and we integrate the whole system of all of these different solutions, what we show is that we would produce enough food on current cropland to feed the world's population now until 2050 and beyond, including population growth, assumed population growth, uh, 
post health and education solution as well, but that we could feed the world's population a uh, healthy, nutrient-rich diet um, without ever having to cut down any forests. Now, that's a huge statement, right? When we're in a world where we're thinking about a limited number of harvests that we can sustain uh, on, this, on this planet without having to cut down more forests, we don't need to do that when we adopt regenerative agricultural practices, when we adopt a plant-rich diet, and when we adopt uh, reducing our food waste. We could feed the world's population and never have to cut down any forests. And we would still have enough cropland to produce materials for organic insulation, for bioplastics, and for some, some biofuels. So if we think about the in-system as a whole as a solution, we can, again, solve some, a, host of, a host of different ch different challenges that we're facing and protect our forests, protect our biodiversity from uh, from degradation. So that's my favorite solution as, as in all of them. Well, thank you. Dr. Cooper and I had hoped that we would be able to end the series on a very positive, optimistic note. And now we all know, including all of our audience, whom to call if we <laughs> need to be encouraged and to hear some good, positive news. <laughs> um, Vincent, I have just, um, I, Robin's coming on and she's going to start shortly with um, Dick Jackson, but one really quick question. Did I read somewhere that glyphosate has been banned in Europe? Yeah, in Europe, it's been banned for many years for use on growing crops. That doesn't mean that they can't import foods that have been grown using glyphosate, though. So there, And there are pockets of the European continent that where glyphosate is uh, allowed. And there are also pockets of urban farmers who have uh, uh, you know, completely banned any consumption of glyphosate-based foods as well. So they're, they're way ahead of us. They, they jumped on this bandwagon a long time ago. So huge variety in practices right now, and we have a long ways to go, but with that could make a huge difference both to health as well as to uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I, I just want to add one more note, which is that I care a lot about glyphosate, but I will say that in the community that I'm involved with, glyphosate is not the, the worst of the of the concerns for many people. There are many worse uh, pesticides and um, uh, insecticides that are on the market. And there is some argument, we can go into that later, about what would happen if you take glyphosate away, so that you would get an increase on those others. So I just want to make a note of that. I yes. think glyphosate is very bad, but I think it's, it's known to be not the worst. Well, such a great point. And as uh, Robin was saying earlier, each of these discussions could easily take an evening in and of itself. So what we will do now, Chad, you can stay on. Vincent, you and I will sign off. And Robin Cooper will introduce our next speaker, um, Dick Jackson, and proceed with their conversation, after which we are hoping that we'll have a few moments for some discussions with the entire panel. Thank you. Before I introduce um, our next panelist, uh, uh, Dr. Richard Jackson, I just want to underscore Chad, the point that you've made, which I think needs to be said over and over, and you have, that this isn't about one solution being extracted. This is about the interconnectedness and all of them working together to get us to the world that we want to see. And I think that that's so important. Nevertheless, we can't talk about everything out of our mouths all at one time. We have to talk about the individual components that make up the whole puzzle.
And so I'm going to um, ask Dick Jackson to join us um, while I am introducing him. Um, Dr. Richard Jackson is uh, Professor Emerita from UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. He has numerous accomplishments in public health, he, and he's worn many different hats during his illustrious career, including serving as the director of CDC's National Center of Environmental Health and California State um, uh, Health Officer. He is also the author of three books on the subject of the built environment and public health, and he's hosted a PBS series, uh, Designing Healthy Communities. Now, Dick is vigilant efforts to break down silos and highlight the interconnection of many disciplines is exemplified by his attention to thinking about how the environments in which we live contribute to public health. So Dick, let's jump in. And since I'm a psychiatrist, I'm gonna take the prerogative of framing the question from my slant. My question to you, Dick, what are your fantasies about the ideal city of the future that improves health and addresses the problems we now face of inequities? I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts. Robin, it's such a pleasure to be with you. And uh, as I was listening to these talks, I was just bubbling over with, oh, man, glyphosate. I bet none of your listeners know that glyphosate's in your Cheerios. Wait a minute. It's been, it's not supposed to be using it. They don't use it to grow the oats. They use it to desiccate the oats and other crops. So they put it on a day before harvest, the same way the um, Drug Enforcement Agency put it on marijuana. Um, It all looks purely ready to harvest one or two days later. Um, and then uh, it's, it gets into the food actually by after use. One of the chemicals that um, uh, Dr. Adams didn't mention is the neonicotides, neo, neonicotinoids, which are these extremely potent nic- artificial nicotine derivatives that you can actually bathe a corn kernel with, plant it in a soil field with glyphosate resistant corn, the corn will grow up and it will be resistant to all the weeds um, or the uh, the glyphosates that's being used, but it also will be resistant to all the bugs going by because when they land on this stalk that's now six feet high, there's still enough uh, neonicotides that are there to kill whatever uh, pollinators are coming by. When I was young, Robin, when you were young, Iowa supplied all the food they needed. Those small farms had orchards and gardens and animals. Right now, Iowa would would starve to death in three days if they could not import food. That whole portion of the Midwest is uh, paved over with corn, soy, and a few other crops. And it's all, a lot of it's commodity. It's it's really being produced uh, as livestock feed or um, to be used to turn into ethanol to put in gasoline, which by the way, we don't need. So um, in some ways, I think my ultimate wish would be to make our agriculture rational. For example, in California, um, our ground levels have dropped about 20 feet all through the Central Valley. Well, what happens when the uh, Golden Gate uh, rises another five to six feet and all that salt water comes flowing into the, fruit and vegetable basket of 
of the United States, uh, we're looking at very significant impacts. And again, it's because we're short-sighted. We're using fossil water, 20,000-year-old water, to irrigate crops. And a lot of it, for example, is going to um, supply race, food for racehorses in Saudi Arabia. Our, their whole agricultural policies are irrational, and they're not focused on human health. So actually, as Biden is looking at appointments for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, I hope he's picking people that are really focused on health and rather than the high production of um, food and fiber or excess food and fiber. And I was really touched that the highest rank in the drawdown list was um, food, too much food, wasting food. Um, at the same time, you know, when, when I was a medical student at UCSF, I never saw a child with type 2 diabetes. We called it adult onset diabetes. And now it's half the diabetes clinic for children. And we've gone from about a oh, small portion of the population being adult population being obese to two thirds of the adult population being overweight or obese. So back to the theme of a good solution solves multiple problems. So just to stay with, stay with that good solution. And I really, when I was at CDC for those nine years, I became obsessed with how often what I was looking at really was the result of how we were building America. So we take fine farmland, land. my home state is New Jersey, um, and we called it the Garden State, and it really was 40, 50 years ago, wonderful, um, productive land. It's all glacial moraine and, and uh, rain every three days. It was an easy place to grow stuff, and now it's all overplanted with homes. And in the long range, not very productive and big consumers and adding to the carbon level of the atmosphere. And so again and again, our agricultural policies are, are mistreating us. So one of the things, and I've been obsessed with this, and uh, is at, for the National Academy of Medicine, a couple, eight weeks ago, we ran a session. One was on COVID and the epidemic. One was on uh, climate and one was more about the healthcare system. And one of the things that came up was we cannot return to normal. What we thought was normal a year ago with massive levels of obesity, massive levels of inactivity, bodies that really are not able to resist even mild infections, much less severe infections, tremendous levels of waste, tremendous contamination of our atmosphere, our groundwater, um, the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico, the finest fishery you could think of, has 7,000 square miles of unfishable dead, dead zone because the chemicals coming off down the Mississippi River into that whole area. And yet every doc you know is telling people eat more fish and eat less red meat and the fish are becoming more and more scarce. So where I'm going with this is a good solution solves multiple problems. And in my video series, we I visited about 12 cities, uh, Atlanta for two days with three camera crews and Detroit the same way. But one of my favorites was a town called Elgin, Illinois. And Elgin was a town that economically collapsed after the Elgin Watch Company shut down around 1965. And the downtown was really, like a lot of Rust Belt cities, uh, pretty uninhabitable. And it was a, a donut. It was surrounded by suburbia that people drove to, where they drove longer distances to uh, the National Laboratory or to Chicago. And they decided they had to rebuild the city. And so they cleaned up the Fox River, which is a remedial water source, got, used the Superfund money to create a bicycle trail that went uh, north-south on that whole area in the beginning for about 10 miles. And now it's the north-south bike route for 
uh, the state of Illinois. They became the center of a cross Illinois bike route. Bike shops began to flourish. The downtown put in a band show, music event, restaurants, and uh, the schools were redesigned so kids could walk to them. You know, and as you all know, we've gone from about two thirds of kids walking to, and biking to school down to about five to ten percent. So creating physical environments that make it irresistible to eat well, to exercise easily, to socialize, um, and um, to really improve our mental health. Uh, everyone knows that the second most common chronic disease in America at this point, I don't need to tell Robin, is And it's not merely because I'm talking about climate change and we are, it is because of the nature of our social system that isolates people increasingly. And of course, COVID's not made that any better. So I think as we reinvent America at the end of this um, very difficult time, going back to what we used to call normal makes no sense whatsoever. We've got to invent a new healthy normal. And um, so uh, I'd rather jump to some more questions. Uh, I just couldn't resist because I just love pesticides, which always my students thought was rather strange, but there's such a paradigm for what we do. We invent things to we invent things to kill things. We use them a lot, and then we're surprised that we're killing a lot of things and we're not doing well. Um, thank you, Dick. Uh, you did delve into another area of your extraordinary expertise in terms of the uh, insecticides, uh, pesticides. Um, um, but also have woven in some clear and um, uh, visions about a kind of way that our cities can be built. Um, and I think you've described that um, at other times as cities for people and for a vibrant, interconnected social life. Chad, do you have some comments to make on that vision of, um, of the world and the built environment where we will where we live closely with each other in cities and how that has an impact on uh, planetary health and carbon uh, reduction. Sure, sure. So I want to see, I mean, maybe I can just quickly show the end of my slide. Oh, this one. Yeah, that's a gorgeous. So, so, you know, when I think about the built environment of, of the future, when we talk about, you know, Robin, you're talking about, you know, we have to think about specific solutions that we have, you know, we can kind of wrap our heads around. When we think about the built environment, that is the system itself, right? When we think about the system of solutions, we can see the future city being a model of what that system actually is, right? Where buildings and the way we live in close proximity to each other, right, but in, in healthy uh, and, uh, and a healthy environment with, with that is community based, where we have walkable cities, where we need to move around those cities. We have beautiful, elegant, clean public transportation. We have intersection points where our public transportation meets bikes. We, you know, we can get onto shared bike systems and have, have, uh, ways of moving around our cities, our green living cities that have integrating. Uh, integrating uh, using through through biomimicry and through uh, creating vertical farms and green roofs and green uh, ways of uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, living in this built environment and of course having our buildings themselves be able to sequester uh, sequester carbon we can build uh, high rises with wood right and so when we talk about uh, tree plantations on degraded land 
which 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 one of uh, one of the uh, attendees uh, made a comment about. What we're mean here is we need to change uh, how we're uh, having a feedstock in uh, for the timber industry to produce uh, more wood that can sequester carbon and be converted into living buildings. All right, and so if we can sequester, if we can take that uh, take the land on that's currently degraded. Uh, pr uh, produce tree plantations to be used for the built environment. Um, we get to sequester carbon. We get to enrich, uh, enrich the degraded land, and we can uh, we can increasingly uh, transform our cities to living, vibrant, uh, uh, a built environment that again is part of the part of um, uh, you know uh, that that becomes a sink in of itself. And these are also buildings that are, are, are uh, become net energy producers instead of net energy consumers by uh, integrating uh, uh, solar and wind and distributed energy storage systems, uh, you know, uh, and building, uh, building energy storage that allows that, uh, that entire system to be uh, self-sustaining, vibrant, uh, healthy, green, um, and really a living, a living city. And that's my that's a vision of the future that I think we all can see where uh, a regenerative economy, regenerative say, a regenerative way of life is a, the new regenerative normal, as as, as Dick is saying, is is uh, uh, the cities become a model of what that system can look like more broadly. Chad, does it have to be ugly? I mean, good grief! You, you go to Barcelona and their carbon footprints thirty times less than the people in Atlanta. And people love being in Barcelona. They love being in Paris with five-story buildings. And by the way, five and four and four five-story buildings that are old have a much lower carbon footprint than skyscrapers that we're putting up right now. Mm -hmm. And so um, that picture you were showing looks more like something that Corbusier would put forward in the 1920s. And mm -hmm. damn it, the modernists already ruined the world. I'm not sure that we want to do that. We knew how to build wonderful towns back in... Uh, 1915, but then we all got in cars and drove off and thought it would solve all of our disease problems and every other problem that we had. And we built, we just built across the landscape. So I think, you know, and the architects have given a lot of thought to this, but we're going to have to think of much more appealing and humane ways to build and not something that looks like Soviet block cities. Well, you know, I, I would push back a little, uh, Dick, and say it's a matter of perspective. Uh, so I look at a, a, a cityscape of uh, this covered in greenery and covered with, with the, the stuff of life as something that's actually quite beautiful. And we see more and more uh, of the global po populations moving into, uh, ur into urban centers, and we're expecting that to grow substantially over the next, uh, the next 100 years. Um, and when we have that kind of uh, urban density, uh, if we were to build four-story buildings at uh, the Paris's of the world, that would just expand outward and outward and outward, just if you're saying we want to avoid. So I do think we need to think about how do we live closer proximity, have higher urban density in healthy environments, and not have that sprawl uh, that you're talking about is uh, with increased populations moving, increased uh, larger and larger urban populations in the decades to come. Again, I hear the interconnection between all of the the few topics that we brought with, that we're highlighting to oh. the built environment, the way we use land and the regenerative um, agriculture, and the education of girls being able to choose about uh, their the number of children we have, dealing with the issues of population growth, and as Chad said, 
how do we house people when we have such a large population? Mm-hmm. On that note, and because I would love to go on and on and on, but I, I'm paying attention to the clock, I'd like to invite all of the other panelists back. And um, I think I want to acknowledge that we we bit off a big chunk of stuff to talk about tonight. <laughs> we do not have enough time to do it. Again, I want to remind you, this was tidbits to get our ourselves and those who are here in the audience tonight to, to think about shared solutions and that what we do now will make a difference for the world that we live in. I, I think you've started to address one of the questions, Chad, um, and it probably re- relates also to Vincent's uh, uh, addressing um, uh, uh, planting processes. But um, uh, Theodora speaks, is asking very specifically about tree farms and the massive planting of tree farms um, as a, uh, a replacing clear cutting of, of natural forests and whether those tree farms are, should be considered um, carbon sinks and what are the, and I basically, I think she's after what are the um, alternatives? Uh, well, well, I sure, sure, sure can jump in uh, just real quickly. So when we talk about currently, first of all, for Theodore, you're absolutely right. If we're clear cutting, uh, primary or, or even, even secondary use forest, uh, clear cutting them and then planting uh, 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 tree plantations on that land. That's, that's a terrible practice and that's not what we would advocate at all. What we're talking about is like current degraded land that's been degraded for some time and there's a tremendous amount of land across the, the world is, that is currently uh, degraded. Um, and, uh, and not just to do fresh clear cuts and actually rarely do fresh uh, clear cuts uh, go straight to uh, uh, tree plantations, that's the cash crop. Um, so, so we're talking about really currently degraded land, um, uh, not clear cutting, but currently degraded land and replanting uh, for tree plantations that would go directly to replace uh, uh, feedstocks going to the timber industry now that are already currently uh, clear cutting uh, primary forests um, and using that for the timber industry. So what we really want to do is um, uh, shift that practice and having a new feedstock on, on some degraded land. And of course, there's a lot, as I said, there's a lot of degraded land and we're, we also allocate um, uh, uh, converting degraded land into farmland uh, restoration, uh, uh, tree plantation, uh, uh, tropical and temperate forest restoration on degraded land. So the degraded land we want to think about is there's many solutions and it's, it's how we allocate them to different types of solutions to help um, help uh, sequester carbon and store it in, in our buildings and built environment. Uh, but we also see uh, in these tree plantations increased soil organic uh, carbon uh, as well, if it's done properly. So I will also jump in and say, I totally agree with everything that Chad has said. Uh, one thing we have to do is stop the burning of forests. Yeah. Um, and converting it to uh, crop systems, uh, land, agricultural land, and cattle land. Um, there's a lot of reasons that far that trees are needed and we need replanting, uh, not just in forests that have been cut, and certainly clear cutting is not a great, uh, great system, but, um, you know, I wrote a book about post-Katrina New Orleans, and they lost 100,000 trees after the flooding and storms there, and people have been rebuilding and replanting 
um, for the last 10, 15 years now trying to re restore those habitats. So the farmlands are being destroyed <laughs> and turning into deserts and, you know, storms are created. There's a lot of havoc being done on our forests. And so we really need to think uh, about replanting in important ways. But this question also made me think about the last question that was asked about aesthetics. And when I heard Richard's wonderful commentary about Barcelona and the sort of fear of the modernists. And I agree with you, there's a lot of reason to fear. My colleague wrote a great book called Self-Devouring Growth about the story of this in Botswana, how one solution just keeps producing another problem, the balloon effect, it pops out somewhere else. But I, I think, and I agree with that, but I also feel like if you're not talking about Barcelona, but you're talking about some of the cities in Germany, there's an aesthetic to the future that is being envisioned in some places in Europe as well, Iceland, uh, you know, Sweden, they've got these cities that look almost like the pictures Chad was showing where they really are trying to create a new vision of the future. And we can't actually just, just try to reproduce the past because we made a lot of mistakes in the past as well. So I just wanted to put a plug in for that. I just jump in very quickly that there is a lot of local wisdom. And when decisions are being made about what to put in, when I was living in Sacramento, we had these developers coming in and wanted to build stuff that was complete, completely out of harmony with a hundred year history of the place. And I think really being very sensitive to the ground truth, to what people who live there know and want, and you know, you know that well from Nepal and elsewhere. Well, take a look at, have you been to the bamboo cities, Green Village in Bali? No. Oh, bamboo is the future. That's a place you need to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bamboo is an, a, a miracle substance uh, that can be, again, there, and many people think it's a, an invasive species, but there's, uh, I forget the exact number, it's like 500 different uh, uh, indigenous species of, of bamboo. And so it's really about finding the right species of bamboo and planting on currently degraded land for bamboo production that can be used for building materials, for construction, for bridges, for bicycles. I even have a bamboo shirt, which is currently not produced in a sustainable way, but there are people who are working to make it uh, ba uh, bamboo clothing uh, sustainable. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a really great uh, substance. And just to, just to comment a little bit what Dick is saying, I would not advocate transforming Paris um, uh, into, into what that image that you saw previously was. We need to retrofit uh, older cities with technology that we know can be more efficient energy users, and we can still also install energy systems to make that retrofitted beautiful building uh, part of the uh, part of that that living kind of city. But what we're really talking about are new cities, new construction, right? New cities, new construction, and we're going to see a lot of new cities. I mean, Dola was talking about sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, population, uh, massive population growth to be expected, even if we're adopting uh, uh, health and education as a solution, you're still going to see a lot of population growth and you're going to see increased urbanization. You're going to see new cities sprouting up. And, and same in India and same in lots of different parts of the world. I want to just say one quick one, 30 seconds. Yeah. And Dola was talking about empowerment of women. And it turns out in the design of public places, what women want in terms of sight lines and eyes in the street and safety and security. I was shocked at how many of the male architects and designers were completely oblivious of that set of issues. By the way, my wife doesn't like going into parking structures for that reason. And um, I think there's a lot of wisdom that everyone needs to bring to bear as we design going forward. There is a really interesting question about 
how we are describing many of these things as human rights and that the benefits to climate change might be secondary or tertiary. And um, Dr. Prada, I'm wondering, in, in the world of human rights, of education, of children, women's health, um, the question here is why haven't international courts been more involved? And I'm wondering if you could just comment on what international discussion is about education of girls and women and this topic. Have there been any courts involved or is it really a matter of just getting the funding and then um, making uh, fundamental uh, changes or benefits of some sort to cultures to allow that to happen? Yeah, so I, I'm not um, aware of any sort of international court sort of uh, um, proceedings related to uh, education of girls, but there is a huge movement and including uh, uh, financial support from the West um, in, in a variety of ways to support keeping girls in school and maintaining girls in school. Uh, governments have uh, sort of a sign up and agreed on um, universal primary education. So free education and primary health care. I personally think that um, to, for fast growing uh, uh, countries like in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, we actually need education in a much faster pace and a much higher level. So I am a big advocate for uh, universal uh, high school education. So paying that the, the public sector will pay for uh, up to high school education. That increases the equity issues because poor households could at least get their children to um, uh, um, uh, sort of a um, uh, a high school education, and then the springboard for increasing the opportunities to go to college will be higher for poor, for poorer families than keep the girls in primary schools. That the, the jump is much is, is much harder. So then they grow and they marry, and then going back to school is a big problem. Um, but um, on the other hand, in health specifically reproductive health. There is a recent case in uh, Uganda where human rights lawyers have taken the government court all the way up to Supreme Court um, to uh, the complaint being that the government is not doing enough for reproductive health for women. That contributes, it wasn't about climate change, but the contribution to poor reproductive health con uh, uh, sort of a services and a contribution to maternal mortality. Um, and, uh, and, and that has changed completely because then other countries uh, follow suit. And there's another case in uh, Tanzania, another case in many places. So that will, that's when sort of a, the legal system comes in support of, uh, uh, of that. But what is important, uh, at least for somebody like myself working in uh, reproductive health for a long time and, and with the great respect and value for uh, education. And when we say girls education is because girls are the ones who are not going to school, not because education is not important to boys. But if we compare, they are the ones that when households have to make decisions because they have small resources, um, they keep the goals out and they, for cultural reasons, um, and it's not pointing fingers, it's just like the general practice is that the girls um, will, will receive 
fewer investments, so to speak, from their families. Um, but, uh, uh, but I do believe that investing in education uh, will make a significant contribution to the development of the countries, but also to the planetary health solution. If Dr. Chad invites me to his conference, then I might be talking about the importance of investing in women and girls, because I truly believe that they are the key to planetary health solutions. Chad Frischman and Dola Prata, Vincent Adams and Dick Jans Jackson, you have helped us uh, learn much and understand much more about not only what some of our challenges are, but specifically some of the things that we can do that offer shared solutions, which is so hugely important when we have much to do. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. And to our audience, we'd like to thank all of you for joining us this fall as we've explored the public health emergency of our changing climate in this UCSF mini medical school for the public. We hope that you leave with a better sense of what it means to be a public health specialist and with the realization that while we face dire challenges, there are clear paths to creating a healthier future for all of us. And we look forward to working with many of you to make that happen. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.